When we did You Never Can Tell and we were in Bath and you were staying with lovely Pamela and she talked about where she'd first met you, which was on a, a board representing women's... Who did you lit- say? Sorry, you're behind the mic. Oh, sorry, Pamela. In, oh, Pamela in Bath. Yes. Yes, the That's right. board you sat on together, and that I think she said that was the seventies. Yes, in the seventies there was a big movement to try and start a women's theatre group. Oh right, yeah. And there were a whole bunch of us, all sorts of people: Pam Jones, um, uh, oh, I forgot, temporarily forgotten her name, who ran the South Bank. Jude, Jude, Jude Kelly. Jude, Jude Kelly. was part of it. Um, all sorts of directors yeah. and writers. And we met for about three years. Really? To try and change the way that theatre was going. Why? Why? <laughs> I mean, I can imagine, but what, yes. was the, what were you trying to do? What did you feel was happening? Well, in the we were trying to get women seen as human beings rather than women, you know, because it was really still very rare to be directed by a woman. And although people like Carol Churchill and Pam Gems were emerging... There were relatively few mainstream plays by women. Women were often, you know, one part out of 12 yeah. in a cast. Yeah, it yeah. was, I mean, it's quite hard to remember when it was like that because it's gone so much to redress the balance now. But one really did have to work hard to kind of put women back. And even though I had done a certain amount of work at the Royal Court, even the court was quite behind with all that. It still feels like if you have a a women-heavy cast, you're making some kind of statement. I mean, maybe not quite so aggressively or politically, but it's like, oh, that's a choice. Mm. It feels like it's still a choice. Yeah. You know, and if you put on an all-female production or, you know, if you have a female artistic director, you say, oh, that's brilliant that they've got a woman as an artistic director, as opposed to, great, perfect person for the job. Yeah. Yeah. It feels that it's yes, still slightly yeah. in inverted commas, even though we've, you know, since that time, of course, there have been enormous leaps. But the sort of pressure around it being a choice, mm. I don't know when we get past that point. When That's it becomes. It. You're a, still marked up by your gender first. Yeah, that it should be a meritocracy, that we're working towards a meritocracy, but my God, it's taking time. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think one sees that most of all in film, really. Yeah. It's still. I've still not. I've done, I did a film for Biban Kidron, but otherwise I don't think I've ever been directed by a woman on film. Right. Um, and, and my daughter Mary, who's now, um, as you both know, is, a, is now a TV and film director, yeah. is finding it very different, you know, and there are lots more technicians who are female. Yeah. And, and significantly lots more women who are producing. Yeah. But actually she hasn't said this, but other direct female directors of her generation have said that it doesn't, they don't feel that it works in their favour. And that, rather sadly, a lot of the commissioning editors and producers who are female are quite hard on female directors. And yeah. they will go towards a male rather than a female. Yes. I mean, I always call it the Thatcher syndrome, you know, that I always felt about her, that she thought, well, I'm here because I'm, you know, the best for the job. Yeah. They have to be the best for the job, yeah. otherwise I'm not going to put them in my cabinet. Yeah. Or I'm not going to give them a, yeah, a it's chance. It, it, it's true. It's interesting that a lot of um, the things I'm reading at the moment, the, um, the, the, there is a kind of move that you have to alter the terms on which success is judged because otherwise you do just get this kind of, particularly in film, you just get this kind of constant circle 
of women succeeding, but succeeding on men's terms, if you like. And so you don't actually get real change. You get a cycle of, of things going on. So, um, you know, you can um, uh, get Catherine Bigelow winning the Best Director Oscar for The Hurt Locker. But um, she she hasn't... You, you then have another sort of 20 years of nobody winning. And actually, Catherine Bigelow won by directing a film about war and directing a film about men. And that maybe she has got some interesting things to say that are not about those themes yes. that also need to be made. And so... And there is... A, it is a kind of ongoing sort of cycle of perpetuating a view of the world, not really just perpetuating a, a gender imbalance. I mean, I do you... Yeah. Uh, I used to be friendly with um, a senior executive at one of the big Hollywood studios called Paula Weinstein. Oh, yeah. And Paula, I saw Paula one day when I happened to be in Los Angeles, and she was very, very frustrated. And I said, what's up? And she said, I've just been in to see my boss. So there's one person above her who's head of the studio. But she had a lot of executive power. And she said, he said to me, Paula, you're really great at your job, but I wish you'd be sweet and biddable as well. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, and it's that, it's that kind of double standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I don't know how you square that circle. Why do you have to be, you know, balls breaker? Yeah. Uh, or why do you have to be a cute little woman? You know, why can't you just be yourself? I know. And do what's just and right in the circumstances. That's yeah. the, the, I mean, that's the interesting thing that you said to Nancy, that often it's, it's hard from within to sort of make change do you feel that you did get anywhere do you feel that they got anywhere with um campaigning for a women's theater group or do you well i think i don't think that we in ourselves changed things but i think we were part of the tide that was starting to change things you know and i was part of i suppose it's i is it now called second wave feminism if the first wave was the post-war generation and we i was very active in the women's movement in the 60s and went to a lot of I went to a lot of rallies and a lot of uh, conventions and so on. And and there was an awful lot of talking that had to be done, and that was done. Mm -hmm. And I, I, think, I think also when I was first working, again, my agent used to say, you know, you've got to keep your mouth shut about this stuff. Mm. And I'd say, why? I'm a woman, you know. But I think now people just do talk about it, don't they? Or yeah. they don't need to talk about it in the same way because things are shifting. I think the next the next big movement is uh, ha be, having a family in the business. To be, having a family, yeah. To be to be uh, openly parenting is is a is a big issue in terms of. Do you find that you have to be quiet about being a mother? Uh, I have been, and I bec I'm becoming less. But it you know, it's it's with concern that you pipe up. If if lots of changes in scheduling create logistical problems at home, yes. That then, if you then after three shifts, I mean, I only did it recently, um, where something a schedule had been changed three times, and Joe was abroad filming, and I was having big issues with the kids, and and uh, eventually the third AD came to me and said, oh, "I'm really sorry, this is actually now going to be moved tomorrow." to tomorrow is that going to be all right and I eventually said actually it's not 
it's not okay. And suddenly there's this sort of wave of, oh my gosh, difficult actor, difficult actor alert goes off across the whole set. And you think, I'm not being difficult. You've changed this three times. In, yeah. in most other areas of life, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. And I know that filming is a very specific thing and there is so there are sort of elements of chaos to the way that any day runs. But the, the language around what you're balancing at home you know, is only, is only I think, now being listened to. It's such a shame that it's that way. But, I mean, I know, and I know, you know, earlier, I only have one child, but when, when she was young, I used to only take jobs if they would guarantee I could get home every two weeks for at yeah. least a weekend. And it, yeah. uh, it did actually disqualify me from quite a lot of work. Yeah. When she was little, I used to take her with me. Yeah. And she had some great adventures in the Caribbean and in Paris for six months and so on. But once they're in school, it's impossible to do that, really. Yeah. I mean, there's a push, there's a, there's a group called Parents in Performing Arts, and uh, Tom Hardy's wife, Charlotte Riley, has been pushing for um, to have a line of a budget uh, within film for childcare and to have a nursery on set for small babies. And she started up nurseries that, you know, for people working in the industry. And so extraordinary people like that are pushing to have yeah. understanding. But for decades, if you bring up the subject of balancing stuff at home, it's sort of whining. Yeah. You're whining, you know. Yeah, it, it is. I do think it's accelerating. So the film I loved last year very much, which was Women Talking, directed by Sarah Polly. Yes. She was... Um, they, they they absolutely made it because I think she just had a child yeah. when she made it and they agreed that they would they would absolutely set it up so that everybody on that film could look after their children as well as making the film yeah. and so they did very specific things about the times they worked and the times that it ended and um, you know and I think that it is happening, but it's still the exception. Yeah. And it's happening because a few people are really pushing for it, but it's yeah. very slow. I remember Josie Rourke at the Donmar talked about trying to alter the hours that people work yeah, yeah. and make sure that all the technical people could get home as well because it's not just the actors, it's, it's also everybody Absolutely. who's putting the show on. And you, you just need somebody who comes in and makes that a priority. But yeah. it, it, it always slips back. I mean, that's the thing. So you get it for that moment and then it doesn't yes. become regular practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also a reflection of inadequate child care and also with all due respect to our menfolk that that women take the brunt of childcare still even when they're exceptional husbands who who will do stuff but it the assumption is that the woman is going to be the one who does the school run or yeah who makes sure there's supper on the table or reads the bedtime story and and i i think it's no accident that in my generation the most prominent actresses were people who didn't have children yeah you know because they were free to go where the work was. And, um, and I think in some cases, and not with all of them, but with some of them, that was a choice because they wanted to work. Yeah. And in other professions, it's true of other professions true in other as professions well. well. Certainly true in journalism, I think. Yeah. So and medicine, present, a couple of yeah, friends yeah, yeah, medicine, yeah, left yeah. it too late to have babies, really. Yeah. Thank you. But what I find is missing from the equation is the understanding that actually having kids, if, if one is lucky enough to have kids changes your dna and I, and I can only speak for myself but i've i hope that it made me better at my job because emotionally it it cuts you in half yeah it opens you up you, yeah 
you know, your body changes, yeah. everything about your understanding and your empathy and your ability to listen. Well, and also, quite apart from anything else, the experience of feeling unconditional love for another creature yeah. is very liberating, isn't it? Which I think is not necessarily something that one knows is going to happen when yeah. you're a child. Um, for me, that was a great surprise and yeah. a great boon. Which, yeah. in terms of your emotional language that you can then bring to your work... Yeah, yeah is a big shift. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know about you, Nancy or Sarah, but for me, one of the big changes about having a child was that you start to see the child in everybody. Yeah. So it adds a dimension to one's empathy. Yes, And relations yeah. with other people as well. Yeah. You stop, yeah. stop necessarily reacting to them for the immediate situation. You start to be able to see what might have gone before to make them that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, really interesting. I thought of that. I think it's true, actually. It does give you that access to... Imagining them as a different person. I can remember we, when uh, Nell was just a couple of days old and I was still in hospital with her and Joe was sat in big plastic wing-back chair in the, in the room and reading the paper, sobbing, uh, that sudden realisation that everybody was somebody's child. Yeah. And what there that, you go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's probably weird yeah, to say for emotional actors, but there is that element of, as you say, it's that vision that suddenly goes, oh, oh my God. Yeah. And then everybody instantly becomes vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the richness, in terms of writing, I think that, and in terms of creating art, I think one of the, um, not that everybody has to create, uh, every woman has to create work that is about children or that every mother has to, you know, has somehow access to suffering. But there is a sense in which if you cut off you know, 50% of a different viewpoint of making art, of what yeah. kind of things that you might actually be interested in in staging are, then you're just losing out so much, really. There's so many, the, the sort of access to different emotions, different thoughts, different patterns, Yeah, I think is interesting. Have you been directed by Mary? Um, not formally. Right. She's helped me with things, and she's. I think she's a very good director. Quite funny because she'll probably hate me for saying this, but I sometimes hear her. I've been on sets where she's been directing. If I've been there, sort of doing the catering or something, when yeah. she's still a student director, and I hear her saying things, and I think, "Oh, she learnt that from me." <laughs> <laughs> so that, in a way, takes me to the other thing because is about getting older and getting work and and the representations of older women. Because I remember you, you had a brilliant... I, when I went through the interviews, you had a brilliant thing that you went from alluring women to women with nervous breakdowns <laughs> to, to bonking grannies. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, actually, you've done quite well to get bonking grannies. I think most people just get grannies. <laughs> At the age of about 40. Yeah. But, I mean, is, is, that, is that a sort of... Um, how has that been for you? Well, what, I mean, it's a minefield. It is a minefield. And also, people want you to reprise something they've liked you in. So if they see you playing an aristocratic haunted lady, they want you to play another aristocratic right. lady. Um, if they see you playing a sort of coarse peasant, they want you to play another coarse peasant. So, And I've quite often willfully said no to things because I haven't wanted to repeat myself also drove my then agent crazy he said people don't know how to cast you yeah. and I said but I joined to play lots of different things you know um and I think it's I think it's I think it actually from this end of the telescope I think it's the difference between being a working actor 
and wanting to be a star because stars tend to be themselves, however gifted they are, but they are always recognisable as themselves. Whereas if you're a working actor, you try to um, inhabit the shoes and mm. the skin of the person you're trying to be and not be um, yourself. And I remember when I, when I first was at the National and I was leaving, I went to Peter Hall and said, um, can, you, can you give me some pointers for what I should be working on next? And Peter said, well, I just wish when you walk across the stage, you just walk across the stage and not say, this is me, Diana Quick, walking across the stage. <laughs> and at the time, it, was, it felt to me an absolutely impossible yeah. thing to achieve. But I now understand very well what he meant. Right. Um, Quite and harsh. That's a piece of advice. It was mean. It was mean <laughs> at the time, and I didn't have a clue how to fulfil it. But, right. but I think that's the thing. And so in terms of um, go, transitioning to other kinds of parts, I mostly like to do things that, things that are not like something I've done before. Right. Um, yeah, there was a brilliant moment. Was, was, I remember uh, we were watching Death of Stalin, and I hadn't seen you at all for a bit. And suddenly, there's a very, very short scene in Death of Stalin where you you appear as a tortured prisoner. <laughs> I sort of went, oh, my goodness. And it seemed so unlikely that you were there as this figure. But that was Armando, because I'd worked with Armando before uh, doing his... his um, he'd done our words of music on the radio, and I was his reader, and we got on very well. And he just said, would you come and do this cameo? Tiny part. And I was delighted. And it was very nice to be playing Michael's wife, Palin's wife. Right. Because I'd done so who, much. I can't remember the character. Who was the character? What and was the name of the character? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the character. Oh, right. I could go and look it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, she, she was a, a, she was a trophy purges. prisoner. Yeah. They put, Stalin put her in prison to try and manipulate her husband to voting for him in the way that he wanted. So that's what the way that that happened. Um... How old were you when you were first offered a bonking granny? How old would you be at that point? You know, what what moment does that shift happen? 50-ish, I suppose. Right. I did a film, uh, I did a film uh, in Holland called The Discovery of Heaven with Jeroen Krabbe directing um, another artistic failure sadly but it was it felt like it was going to be a big thing and they were very excited it was a Dutch production but made in English and it had Greg Wise and Stephen Fry playing these two friends and um, it's a madly complicated story but it's about it's about an avatar being born uh, who has to go and rescue the tablets in from the tabernacle in Jerusalem and return them to heaven so he's an angelic creature who's born. And he's born to um, Greg Wise's wife. And I'm the mother. Right. And he falls in. It's arranged by heaven for him to fall in love with me so that I will be there to protect the child. Gosh. It's sort of balmy. But it's a very famous book in Holland right. and they had great hopes for it. But somehow it didn't quite work. And I had to do a love scene. We were talking at the beginning about about what are they called intimacy coordinators uh, but int we didn't have an intimacy coordinator but we did have to do quite a sort of erotic scene and because Euron's an actor he was extraordinarily careful and he choreographed it all and practiced it with stand-ins and then said okay you just slip in here 
And this is what's going to happen. And we did it in one take. Right. That's great. This is good. Well, I, w I want to answer, I want to do a fuller answer to a question you asked me. Okay. Things that I really enjoyed. Because I oh, yes, yes. I'd like you, yes. Tell me. Things I? you really, really enjoyed, yes. Well, I wanted to talk a bit about doing After Mrs. Rochester. Because that was a very unusual experience. It was shared experience. So a shared experience? It was shared experience. Yeah. And it was a play that was devised and directed by Polly Teal yeah. about Jean Rees, who was the writer best known for Wide Salgato Sea. And um, what was most unusual about it, apart from... Jean Rees being such a wonderful writer, whose work I had known very well, yeah. because White Targassi was first published when I was a student, and she won big international literary prizes for it and got a lot of attention in her late 70s. So I read that, and then I went back and read all the early books, and she'd had this strange humpbacked career. As a young woman, she'd written books which were... Uh, to do with her experience as a young woman who had to live on her wits and through the kindness of strange men um, and often took her, came a cropper. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a series of four books about that. And then she sort of disappeared because of the historical circumstances of her life until much, much later when she was rediscovered um, by Diana Atthill and Frances Wyndham mainly who were literary folk, and Francis had seen one of the early books in a bouquiniste, uh, you know, those booksellers along the Seine. Yeah. He found a second-hand copy and read it and tried to find her and was told she was dead, but then somehow put out an ad and somebody saw it and got in touch with her. And he went to meet Jean Rees, who was living in very straitened circumstances down on the Devon coast, mm and drinking far too much. And she said, oh, yes, I'm just finishing a book. It'll be ready in a few months. In fact, it took another 10 years, but he was very faithful, and Diana was appointed to be the go-between and went down and helped her edit. And that book became White Sargasso Sea. So I'd read all her stuff, so when this play came my way, I was very pleased to do it. And it was a group of us. It was five women and two men mm. in the cast. And shared experience claimed that everything was a shared experience. I would take issue with that because it was actually a surprisingly autocratic company, really. But we, we, we got it on and we started a tour and then one week of the tour was cancelled um, for some problem at the theatre. So we had a week where it was, the company was suddenly in limbo. And Polly said, would you like to have a week's holiday or would you like to rehearse some more? And we all said we would like to rehearse some more because, of course, you'll know this, Lance, you learn so much from playing to an audience yeah, yeah. and you find out what really works and the bits that aren't quite there yet. Yeah. So we said we'd like to rehearse, but only if we can have a shopping list of things that we don't think are quite right. And to her great credit, Polly said yes. And we had a week of going back and going through the play with mm -hmm. a fine-tooth comb. And whenever there was something that somebody felt wasn't right... We would look at it and because we all knew each other and regarded each other very highly, it became a group, it became a properly shared experience yeah. and we solved so many of the problems and when we resumed the tour and then came into the Duke of York's, yeah. it was a much more finely honed mm. 
piece. Yeah. And it did, re and it, it was extraordinary. It's very hard to describe the structure of it because it's a memory play yeah. where the older Jean, who I was playing, is old and alone and drinking far too much and haunted by her past. And she goes back and, and then scenes from her earlier life are played out by a younger actress playing her from childhood. Right. Up until she disappears from her Paris life. Yeah. And and it was remarkable and we, we became so tuned into each other. Yeah. I it remember yeah, cool. No, I was gonna say, I just think I find that extraordinary that that there are things that you can achieve in a performance only at the end of a run. Yeah. And that the you sort of know that and there's a frustration but also I guess a spirituality in just giving into that. And knowing that it isn't—it is only in the sort of Zen art of repetition that you will truly, truly allow all those words yes. into your muscles and and truly, truly form an understanding and a rhythm yes. and a sort of shared heartbeat with the rest of the company. Yes. And you can only achieve that at the end of a run. Well, or, or, or in mid run. Perhaps. Or mid run, whatever you know. Yeah. But you have. But how often does one then have the opportunity to go back to the drawing board? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. Yeah, and it's very—it's really interesting because that takes us back to Brideshead in a way that, that you know that that shared experience of doing something and then having yes. time yeah. to assess it, and and to say we can make this better because we as actors have an investment in it. That that is really interesting, incredibly I mean, so, rare. But some directors are better. At it. Ian Rickson is very good at that. He's very democratic, I think, um, in the sense that you know he will go back and and. And, and doing a lecture was like that, where we could go back and and fine-tune it and make it It's, it's trusting your contribution as well, isn't it? There's a sense of, you know, that that, that grows. You, what it, your part in that play and being able to flesh that out and, and how you listen to each other is, is based on how willing one is to be heard almost in a way you know that that the bat and i think how, how do you mean into i think it, oh, i was supposed to, in my head i'm i'm associating it with the recalibration of who you are in the world as we get older is very similar to who you are in a play throughout the course of the run of that play there's a similar sense of taking ownership of the of your own essence and allowing that to have its presence in a way that you don't necessarily have control over, but you you just sort of, but just by being in the room, you've changed you've changed the chemistry of the room, and and you take ownership of that, and have have the confidence to speak out, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. but also sexuality and and the fact that you know as we get older, we we're sort of culturally still quite apologetic for an older sexuality. Yeah. You know, but the whole thing about playing bonking bran grannies and all that is that that doesn't go anywhere. It's just knowing how to be present with it and to take ownership of it. And and I think it's similar with a part. You take ownership of your contribution to that company mm. in a way that balances with everybody else's contribution. It's a it, there's a journey to it, and and you earn the right at every stage. But you said to me years ago. I remember I was struggling with. Um, just getting older and what that means and being sexy on stage and is it okay to be sexy on stage when you're older? And you just said, you just have to recalibrate more often. 
And and I've I've held on to that really. I, Good, I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> Seems to be working. Yeah, yeah. So let me just do two real quick fire ones. Do you have a do you have one role that you absolute favourite? That I've played or haven't played? That, well, that's my second question. So <laughs> one role that you've played that would be absolute favourite and one role that you wish? No, I don't, I don't ever have one thing that I go, oh, that was the moment. It's usually the thing I've most recently done. Right, yeah. Um, that's good. Yeah. And, you know, they're, and they're also, you know, they're all such different experiences, really. I mean, I love doing... The late lamented, the very recently late lamented, Adam Brace wrote a play for me called called Midnight Your Time. Um, Sadly, Adam died last month, very unexpectedly, in his 40s. But that, and that, I didn't really want to play that part because she wasn't a very nice woman. She was a woman on the phone to her daughter, wasn't she? Quite nice women, but actually the most interesting parts are usually the monsters. Yeah. And he had, you know, he was very clear about this character. And, and, uh, and it took, took me quite an effort to play it because I kept wanting to smooth the edges and justify her. But she was a monstrously selfish, um, uncomprehending mother. And I loved doing that in the end. I mean, I loved doing it because I loved Adam and I loved Mike who directed it, Mike Longhurst. And um, and it's the second time I've done a one-woman show mm. and that's always scary. Mm. It's so scary because... You don't. You, one gets so used to being in an ensemble where you feed off, and you play reactively, with the with the rest of the company. And when it's only you, you have to find other ways of doing that. Um, but then during lockdown, Mike came and said, "We've been talking, and we think we'd like you to record it." And of course, because it was lockdown, I had to do it all by myself. Luckily, Mary, with my daughter, was there, so she was able to sort of come and sort me out a little bit technically. But essentially, it was me at my cottage during lockdown with my iPad. And we would rehearse on on Zoom with a technical person and with Mike. And then they would have to switch off and I'd have to record it. And then we'd send it down the line and then they'd edit it. And then we'd do retakes. So it was very cumbersome. But I learned so much from doing that. Yeah, And I think it had... About 45,000 hits. Yeah, I think it's yeah. still available. I think you can still, still see available? it on YouTube. Midnight, your time. But they put it's a woman ringing her daughter, isn't it? Say again? It's a woman ringing her daughter. It's a woman, yes. It's a, it's a woman who's slightly estranged from her daughter who's gone to live in Palestine. Mm. And she's terrified that she's going to come to a sticky end. And she's very new to Zooming or, or phoning from her iPad. And she she just makes they they've arranged that they will call when it's midnight in Palestine, and she never gets her daughter on the phone, and so it's a series of of her leaving messages for yeah. her daughter. Wow! And you learn about her. It's life. Brilliant! It, it is really yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I was watching it. it was it was a pleasure to watch. But I'm surprised. I mean, I I'm constantly meeting people who've caught it yeah. on the Donmar when it was first put out for the Donmar. What was the one where you were doing a famous singer with? Was it Onassis? Oh, uh, yes. What was that one? That Well, I was playing Callus. Call- Maria Callus, that's it. Oh, I love playing Callus. Yeah. I what was that in? I don't know. That. It was a play called Ari. Yeah. Ari, exclamation mark, about an acid by Martin Sherman. 
which Nancy did, Nancy Meckler, who had been the other half of Shared Experience. Yeah. It wasn't a Shared Experience production. Really. No, it was a bath. Well, didn't you do it at Yes, bath? it was a bath, yeah. yeah. Um, but I love being Callous. She's such a fascinating, tragic creature. Um, and I had to sing. And that was really scary. I've had to be an opera singer twice in my life. Have you? I, I mean, I've done musicals as well. I mean, I can belt out a song if I have to. I can brazen it out. And yeah. I played Mother Courage, which is Sangspiel, which is, you know, more acting than singing. Yeah. But to do proper bel canto singing is oh. absolutely terrifying. And the first time I had to do it was for a, an American TV production of... Um, um, what's the musical about... Oh God! I've just gone dry, gone dry. About opera, or about yeah, um, about the person who haunts the opera house. No, oh, Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera. Thank you. And I was playing a diva in that. And, oh wow! Um, and uh, ABC Television or NBC Television sent me to the Juilliard. Oh some, my lord! For some opera classes. Gosh. And so I I squawked my way through about six weeks of twice weekly lessons, and then for the for the very last lesson. And I turned up, my teacher said, oh, I've got a surprise for you. I've got one of my star singers to come in who's going to help you. And I, I was, um, I'd been practicing these two arias. And she said, she's going to sing for you first. And we oh, were in no. a room, just a normal room. And she started, and she practically blasted me out of the room. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Lord. And she said, okay, it's your turn. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was going, such a nana. Um, but I mean, really, the point of the lessons was so that I would have the stance yes, and yes, the presentation. Yeah, yeah. I was going to be singing it to feedback. And actually, when we went when we went to Hungary to film it, there were you know there was a whole opera house of extras who didn't speak my language, and I walked onto the stage and started doing it, and they gave me a standing oh. ovation. Oh, how wonderful! <laughs> but so that was that, and then and then the other time was playing Callas, and I had to do Oh Mio. Oh, mio padre. What is it? I don't know. It's a room with a view theme, isn't it? I don't know. It's not a room with a view. Is it not? Yes, it is. When he's, when he's, um, Julian Sanders foot throwing himself out of the tree going, beauty! No? I don't know. But I absolutely love doing it. Yeah. And I had a lot of lessons for that. But I can see that I'd probably need about another ten thousand hours. Oh my god! I had my a, opera debut. I had a few opera lessons. I was at art school in Italy, and there was a friend of my dad who was a boss-eyed Buddhist opera singer, and I went for a few lessons. And I had a similar experience. You like sort of completely blown away, and you think, "I'm not quite sure why I'm here, but it's just so glorious to yeah. be here." Well, it actually doing singing lessons. I did have singing lessons as well when I was in. Um, I was in the musical of Billy Lyre at Drury Lane in my early 20s. Oh, wow. And I did six months of singing classes for that. And I really loved it, actually. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not a naturally confident singer. I think the thing about being a singer is you have to love it. Yeah. Because you just have to get out of the way of, your vo of opening up your throat and letting it sound out. And I think when one's at the beginning, one's always judging oneself and going, oh, this is, yeah. this is not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the unlikely setting of an Italian opera house, I think we should we should give you a, a, a standing ovation yes. and applause for a very very small dip into what has been a kind of rich and extraordinary 
career. I mean, thank you so much, Diana, for talking to me. Well, it's lovely talking to two such dear pals. Thank you. It's goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, critic.